Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. Hello, hello. You're listening to Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. We're here at Roberta's Pizza on a really nice, crisp fall Monday. And uh, we're joined by a famous restaurateur and uh, part uh, one of the two founding brothers of the Blue Ribbon Restaurant Group. It is Eric Bromberg, not Bruce, sorry. Yep. Hey, <laughs> so, Kathy. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. And came all the way down from Danbury, or around Danbury, Connecticut, um, just to join us for a pizza and radio show. And uh, so you guys, y- you must eat at a different restaurant of yours every night, no? Um, <laughs> that's pretty true. I <laughs> rarely get a chance to eat uh, at other places. I Really, if I'm in New York, I'm eating in one of my places. Right, that's that's fun. You know, it's a it's a family business too. So yeah, that's how we keep it real. We keep things uh, organized and consistent, and make sure everything's happening right. Right on. So just to back up, uh, the original restaurant, uh, Blue Ribbon, in Soho, opened in 1992. I believe 1992, November 3rd. And in that time, uh, over the course of the year, it was uh, named the Best new restaurant by Zagat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure many uh, would-be restaurateurs um, would be dying to know your secrets. Because uh, I, I hear statistics like 90% of restaurants fail in the first year. And uh, how you know, do you res- do it? Restaurant's kind of a tough thing. I think all business, all entrepreneurial business is kind of a tough thing. But with... I don't know if there's a secret to success, but I think something that we've started from the beginning is you have to have a passion and a real love of what you do. And, you know, that's kind of the first ingredient. The second ingredient is, I guess you got to have a good idea Mm -hmm. because you can be passionate about a bad idea and (laughs) nothing really works out. Um, But we, we really built the place ourselves and from our hearts and we never looked at making a restaurant to be what do we think other people want to eat or what do we think this neighborhood you know what's going to sell or what's going to be economically you know successful for Mm us we always measure success in uh kind of being happy and comfortable with what we're doing so bruce and i just really made a restaurant that we wanted to eat at and be at because we knew we were going to be there 18 to 20 hours a day seven days a week my wife was there with us when we started and actually for the first almost eight years until uh um 
we had our first child. Mm-hmm. But it was Bruce and I, Ellen, and all our friends. So we just wanted to cook what we loved cooking, food we thought was delicious, and we made it. Uh, basically, in a selfish way, we made it just for ourselves. <laughs> and the fact that other people liked it was kind of a bonus. Right. But you you and your brother both paid your dues. You both trained at the Cordon Bleu. And, yep. And we, both, uh, we both worked in France. We both learned in France. Uh, we traveled a lot when we were younger. Our parents took us to Europe. And we got a good taste of it. And around the, the U.S., tasting all different kinds of food and all different uh, restaurants. And then... We both trained at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris and worked in a variety of restaurants there. Mm-hmm. You know, as much learning the culture and the not just recipes, but in France, the love for food and the respect for recipes and dishes and your guests is really something unique. And we really, you know, gave us the base and the foundation. Right, and that shines through with the, with the original blue ribbon, but it was more of a eclectic mix of cuisines. Maybe that has to do with some of your traveling around the world. Yeah, that really, you know, honestly, we we learned French technique and French cooking, and love for that. But being uh, New Jersey kids, we grew up in the shadow of Manhattan, so. On weekends, we our dad would take us to Soho or take us to the Upper East Side or take us to midtown and go to some special place whether it was you know a japanese steakhouse where they cooked uh, steak kobe beef on a rock or you know some interesting indian place or smorgasbord place we had a lot of experience like seeing other cultures through their food so you know when it came to making the menu we really just kind of decided we don't want any um I guess restrictions or definition about who we were going to be mm-hmm. and what the restaurant was going to be. So we just wanted to make foods we love and we loved a lot of different things. Cool. Yeah. I, see, I'm a Jersey kid too. And now I, I don't see why Jersey gets such a bad rap. I had a, I'm grateful for having similar experiences, you know, going to Chinatown. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Eating Indian food all the time. And uh, yeah, so it's a good uh, melting pot. Yeah. Jersey's awesome. Are you going to have a blue ribbon in Jersey? <laughs> Represent. Um, you know, I don't know yet. We're uh, we're certainly uh, working our way through New York and enjoying that. Cool. And what inspired the blue ribbon sushi? Because uh, there's how many restaurants total are um, in the restaurant group? I think we're about. I think we're ten right now. Okay. So yeah, we have one, two, four sushi restaurants. Mm-hmm. And uh, the latest one being in Las Vegas, uh, which That's we opened yeah. in December. Um, but sushi really found a love of sushi in France, in Paris, surprisingly enough. Because um, hmm. living in Paris and going to French cooking school and working in French restaurants, there you needed a release in something that was just different. And there's not much that's as completely different is from French cooking is Japanese cooking. So there was There's a place, not much difference. I mean there there oh, aren't there is an enormous difference. Okay. So the the biggest difference between culinary styles is Asian and French. So for the there was a restaurant called Yaki Japo in Paris okay. and that's where my roommate and I would go 
any day off, any time we had, any kind of peaceful moment. And we would sit and watch the sushi chefs and just thought it was so cool how beautiful the food was and how you could see them cutting it right in front of you and uh, just the flavors were amazing. So grew that love. And then when uh, Bruce and I were days off in the city, we would go to Japanese restaurants. Mm -hmm. And... So you really wanted to eat what you exactly. <laughs> what you put out there in the so world. So <laughs> we loved it, and we wanted to make it. You know, it's kind of that the same spirit of being eclectic at Blue Ribbon. It was like, well, we love sushi, so why not try and do something really special with sushi? And we found out pretty quickly that there was kind of a situation back in the early '90s, more than now, but where uh, Japanese restaurants kind of generally treated Japanese guests better than American guests. And we would find that like, even if we sat at the sushi bar next to a, a Japanese guest and they ordered a, a certain fish, the sushi chef would pick from one piece for them and then a different piece for us. So we found, we decided, you know what, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> and why shouldn't uh, the rest of us get the you know the democratic treatment and get the best everybody's mm -hmm. got so that was kind of the mission and in, in the beginning of why we embarked on blue urban sushi we really wanted to bring a cool comfortable pleasant friendly and accessible um sushi to non-biased non-biased <laughs> and just you know a really generous version of sushi to the american public and to our, our you know who ourselves really we wanted to be comfortable in our own place mm -hmm. so once again we just made a restaurant a sushi restaurant that was exactly where we wanted to be and we found we ate probably in 200 sushi restaurants <laughs> over a couple of months and found a guy named toshi yuki who was had his own place on uh, lexington avenue in uh 30th and he was the best sushi chef we found, and we convinced him to sell his place and become partners with us, and we've been partners ever since. Terrific. Has he taught you how to make sushi? You know, he has, and we still uh, are very respectful. We'll do it uh, on off hours, but we never do it for the guests. Yeah. We leave that to the masters. Yeah, you have to go through rigorous training and all it's, that. Uh, it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of, a lot of technique, and it's a lot of knowledge. Cool. And now what is the uh, idea behind the name, Blue Ribbon? Were you guys sitting around drinking PBR one day? And just, uh, you know, <laughs> funny you ask. Uh, we struggled in the beginning with uh, what the name was going to be. And we really just wanted uh, the name to mean something forever. And we wanted... We like the idea of instead of having a new name for every restaurant we would do, that we wanted something that would really just engage and be long lasting mm -hmm. and so we we with our french training and we were american and strongly american and from new jersey and really shaped by that we wanted it to be you know somehow bridge the gap between french and and mm -hmm. american so cordon bleu the mm -hmm. cooking school we went to is actually translated blue ribbon and so that was the first uh light bulb idea and then the idea that blue ribbon is first place and 
that's what you strive to be always is the best. So that's what we do. Excellent. Now, uh, do you guys still cook at home sometimes, or cook? Do you all, find the time? Yeah. Uh, almost every day, I'm at home. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to cook at home. I love, you know, it's kind of what I talked about about being passionate about what you love to do, and the thing about being in the restaurant business that's really pretty special is that there's so many aspects mm-hmm. of restaurant business. Whether you're behind the stove, whether you're designing or conceiving of what you're doing, whether you know you're involved in like, what we're doing right now, being on the radio, talking about it, TV, video, teaching. There's so many aspects that really you can keep yourself busy all the time, and there's just always another outlet, another venue, and we love cooking so much that we just essentially are always cooking. It's always around Always food. there. It's always circling around that. Um when did you know that you wanted to be a restaurateur? A That's an interesting question. It was, I guess, from uh, little kids, uh, always knew I wanted to make things. I didn't really know I wanted to cook. And honestly, um, my dad was a lawyer. And in our house, you were either a lawyer or you were... Uh, I don't know what. <laughs> you were uh, banished. <laughs> so not even that you were banished. There was just never really a conversation about another job. Okay. So it didn't even strike me that there was an option to be a chef or be be a restaurateur or any of that stuff. Um, in college, I decided that I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I was actually going to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And went on that for a couple of years. And then as I was graduating realized perhaps I wasn't a good enough musician to be a musician. What'd you play? I played guitar. Okay. And uh, I enjoyed it. Rock? uh, Rock folk, sort of a little country-ish. Cool. And that was my love, but um, I had a partner and he passed away and kind of lost the the ability to, to do it on my own. And a friend that I grew up with, called me and said, I want to go to cooking school in Paris. <laughs> and do you want to be my roommate? And so I thought about it. And honestly, the first thought was, well, that I can have two more years of school before I have to decide what <laughs> I'm going to do when I grow up. And uh, then I went to Paris. And within a couple of months of being in Paris, I completely realized that food was something I loved I was good at it. I loved eating it, and now I knew how to make it. And so I completely, I shifted my obsession from music to food, and it's been that way ever since. Interesting. I hear so many stories about those different arts, just kind of. You know what? It's it's moving. a pretty common thing to yeah. kind of have love for that that artistic expression, and then sort of finding where you fit in. You know where your talents kind of kind of drag you. Right, and food is also a practical obsession because you have to eat. <laughs> that's yeah, what I like to true. say to people. It's like, you know, it's not all about haute, you know, artiste, but uh, you gotta eat. So, anyway, um, we're gonna just put on a quick little song, and I'll be right back with some more, hopefully, uh, interrogations. <laughs>
back on Let's Eat In. I'm Kathy Arroway, your host, and we are joined by Eric Bromberg, the co-founder of Blue Ribbon Restaurant Group, which includes Blue Ribbon Soho, Blue Ribbon Sushi, Blue Ribbon Bakery, and uh, a few more, <laughs> and a few more coming up, too. Yeah. Uh, you spoke of a rooftop sushi restaurant in overlooking Central Park. Yeah, we've uh, actually this Tuesday, which is when? Oh, it's tomorrow. <laughs> We're uh, starting on the rooftop at the uh, Six Columbus Hotel. And we have a rooftop garden area and a bar and sushi. Wonderful. Are you going to really grow cool. a few plants on the rooftop garden area? You know, we have a couple of little plants growing. We just got started. Okay. So... Uh, it's getting colder now, so yeah. we're kind of losing our season. We're going to start next year. Well, spring, it's a great way to grow a few herbs to throw onto. And exactly. It smells wonderful. We're actually sitting below some uh, <laughs> plants. I saw that. <laughs> if you haven't noticed. Um, yeah, that's that brings me to another question. Um, have you seen, uh, what are the biggest changes over the last decade or two, almost? Yeah, it'll be two decades since he's first uh, started doing the restaurant thing in uh, the spring. So uh, what's what what's some crazy stuff that's happened? I think sort of the, the real exciting things that happened, maybe the biggest uh, change, is sort of to the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, restaurants were really dominated by big, showy... Um, front-of-the-house or investor-dominated restaurants mm. where chefs were really, you know, workers in the picture. They were behind the scenes. There were maybe, you know, a handful of what Casual. you would consider you know, well-known chefs, oh, okay. but they were always the highest of high-end French chefs. Right. Those were the, the people that you knew, Andre Soltner, those guys. Um, when we started uh, Blue Ribbon in 92, it was really kind of the beginning of this whole groundswell of chefs making places for themselves mm -hmm. and making their own places. And instead of, um, you know, somebody, up all these instead stuff. of coming to work for yeah. someone, they were actually the entrepreneurs. So, you know, it kind of, it started right there and, at Blue Ribbon in the very beginning, we, you know, we, Bruce and I just kind of jumped out of the, the mold where we took the smallest place we could get, mm -hmm. you know, we only have 48 seats at Blue Ribbon and right in, you know, in Soho, which Sullivan Street wasn't really Soho at that point, but okay. kind of stretched Soho a bit. 
And, you know, we made a place from the kitchen out instead of from the decor in. Mm. So the essence was, and actually our corporate name is Food First. (laughs) And that's where we took, that was kind of our driving force. And I think all the, the wave since then has really been chefs have grown to be the leaders in the restaurant business instead of they're a worker behind the scenes in the restaurant business. And I think that's the most exciting and you certainly see it, you know, everywhere in media and beyond Mm -hmm. that. And I guess with the the celebrity chef kind of aspect of things, it, uh, you know, maybe that's a little too far, but it's just really cool to have when you have a dream, a food dream and you're the chef that Mm -hmm. you can open your own place and, you know, make something really special. Well, that's really interesting. Um, I'm so lost here on this topic, too. I don't don't know if you realize I went two years without eating in restaurants, so I'm kind of like the... No, I I like restaurants a lot. But, um, yeah, that's a really interesting observation. So um, now that more chefs are being involved, do you think it's affected the type of food or perhaps the type of diner? diners? I, I think both. I think it's really affected the type of food. I think food is far more interesting, far more... Um, culinary in spirit and far more inventive and exciting and instead of really decor or style or you know attitude those have taken a back seat to mm-hmm. real artistic expression and I think it's a spectacular uh, turn of events right on and what's your take on the farm to table movement uh, I think it's extraordinarily cool I think it's motivating millions of people to really take a look at what they're doing and what they're eating and what they're putting in their bodies and what they're doing to the land. And I think it's, it's a fabulous, uh, you know, kind of spirit to drive people to do something they love. I think, you know, as in maybe any, uh, wave or trend, there's another side to it. And there's kind of a, a opposite to that curve, mm-hmm. which is, You know, people do like to travel. People do like to see other things. And there is an intriguing aspect to, you know, having, um, let's say, a product, uh, having langoustine from Brittany Mm -hmm. available in New York. At the same time, having something, you know, a tomato available from 100 miles or 80 miles away those things both have a place and i think the balance will be you know struck relatively soon mm-hmm. but i think the farm to table thing is, it, our wave at the moment is really you know it's inspiring and it's ex- exciting and it right. brings especially a place like this yeah. you know roberta's really kind of digs in deep and it has a you know maybe the identity right and what are some of these uh, ingredients that you can't live without, perhaps, that are that mm. necessarily come from afar? I think... Langoustines sound pretty good. Langoustines yeah. are, are pretty spectacular. Um, sardines, Okay. I think, you know, come you from the Mediterranean okay. or Portugal, and those are really, really special. They're so ubiquitous, I forgot. Anch- <laughs> right, anchovies, um, you know, I mean, to me... Uh, even throughout the United States, the, if you can kind of appreciate different lamb 
um, whether it comes from Colorado mm-hmm. or whether it comes from Pennsylvania or whether it comes from you know other areas throughout the country and there's really different flavors and different tastes yeah I think that's an interesting aspect to food so um, let's see mostly seafood and I Fish, guess you yeah. know seafood is a tough thing because if you live inland and farm to table is your only mantra. You really don't eat fish. You, yeah. you don't have that opportunity. And perhaps you're near a trout stream, but you lose the entire, uh, you know, seafood market. So <laughs> I think there's, you know, there's a balance all around and I think seafood's good for you. Mm-hmm. So I, I like kind of having uh, the more balanced approach. Yeah, and where does uh you know the most majority of your seafood come from from for Blue Ribbon? Because I well we have we we really draw from all over the world, and as far as Japan, actually we get yeah. most of our fish from sushi from Japan. Right. Um, we also get local fish as much as possible. Obviously, you know, there are certain things that are better mm-hmm. here than anywhere else in the world. Squid. The Northeast has the best squid in the world, uh, except for certain varieties that are in the Mediterranean. But really, that's amazing. Uh, Northeastern lobster, there's no better lobster than Maine lobster. Mm -hmm. And even some Long Island lobster. So it's really, you know, I guess we go where... Wherever we can find something special, uh, we go for it. But we always uh, take into consideration how it's fished and what you know where it's from and we're very careful about each product we buy right on um so i have to ask this question before we run out of time because i ask this to every guest and i think you'd be a great expert so what is the most romantic date meal it could be as many courses or as few as you like i think the the best way to approach a date meal is to approach smaller courses and um not be too full at the end of the meal because <laughs> that's a that's always trouble that's true. um but i love 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 sushi as a date yeah option um i love seafood as a date option because it's very light the sauces are generally lighter you can um you know, I, I don't know, feel a little lighter on your feet mm-hmm. at the end. Also, it's Clean, a little more tasty. elegant uh, to eat. Um, I love lobster as a as okay. a date item, that's and I great. love caviar, even though, you know, that's not always uh, loved by everybody. But usually, you know, I would say sushi, lobster, and rack of lamb. You can't really beat rack of lamb for its elegance. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I can get with that. Uh, the little, like, like lollipop uh, lamb chops. Yeah. Cute. These are some good suggestions. I was actually recently at, um, you know, getting back to the seafood and, you know, sourcing from all these different places. A lot of people think of sushi and as big slabs of big, big fish. But there's, when you go to Japan, you know, and I've never been there, actually, but um, I hear that, you know, it's all about just all the different in-season types of fish and eggs of fish and uh, mollusks and what have you in the sea. And exactly, and we so much so much variety. And we 
maybe one of the the coolest things that we got at Blue Ribbon Sushi is that a normal sushi restaurant may have like six, eight, ten fish to mm-hmm. choose from. On any so given night, we have between fifty and sixty mm-hmm. fish available, different fish, ranging from tiny little minnows to you know a big uh, tuna, but eels. We have yeah eel sardines, mm-hmm. uh, mackerel, all different varieties, and there's just so I many different mackerel. things, and they all taste so different and delicious. I've, I once had an oyster placed beautifully on a bit of rice, and the, like that, that's, that's just so good. fun. Yeah, it's always good. But um, oh wait, oysters good for date too. Oh yeah, I left that yeah. out <laughs> for obvious reasons. No, um, but um, I, I I don't know. I feel like a sushi tends to get a bad rap for you know. Uh, ideas of sustainability when people think about tuna they're like oh they're scared that it's one of these endangered species and if anyone has those concerns i would i would recommend them to try the the eel and you know the I mean, there's a lot of things it's interesting it's a it's kind of a hot topic right now but sustainability and tuna there's an enormous effort now mm-hmm. to repopulate the bluefin tuna and to grow and raise bluefin tuna and put them back into the wild. So there are a couple of, of there's a Kindai tuna, which is um, made uh, farmed in Japan and they start, they actually hatch the eggs in captivity and then introduce those eggs into the wild and they keep them, uh, safe until they're big enough but supporting buying that tuna mm-hmm. kind of supports the future of uh the food supply cool so, so it helps that process go along so more tuna can be introduced into the ocean absolutely so when you're supporting a restaurant that has these values and sources responsibility responsibly then you're actually helping these efforts yeah exactly so. Well, thank you for for sharing that with us. Um, And thanks again for being here on the show. I guess that's about it for us. And uh, look out for the next Blue Ribbon Sushi at uh, Columbus Circle next year. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is a message from Fork and Anchor. Aaron Fitzpatrick, the host of our wine program, Unfiltered, is looking for help on Kickstarter to open Fork and Anchor, a general store inspired by two food-loving ladies with an equal affection for urban life, the sea, and the agricultural paradise of Long Island's North Fork. The store is situated in a growing community of farmers and winemakers and will become a meeting place offering prepared foods, a variety of sun-dries, and a selection of homespun products, many of which will have their origins in New York State. Your backing will help them fulfill their dream of fostering relationships with the community and making the local food system accessible on a broader scale. Search kickstarter.com for Fork and Anchor. 
and donate today.